to the Cup of Tea podcast. I'm Mike Ewan. And I'm Catherine Lilly. And we both work in the Teaching Excellence Academy at the University of Hull, where our roles are to develop, celebrate and promote HE level teaching. This podcast is designed to explore and share some of the fantastic teaching practices here at the university by showcasing work of some of our colleagues, what they do, how and why they do it, and what the impact has been. In this week's episode, we talked to one of our National Teaching Fellows, Neil Gordon from Computer Science, to talk about his teaching practice and approaches to assessment. So without further ado, pour yourself a cup of tea and enjoy the show. So thank you, Neil, for coming. We're here today to have a cup of tea with you to hear about your work and what you've been doing because we're interested in hearing about how you have been able to take large modules of up to 300 students, I think, am I right? And um, making it so that students can express a learning preference in terms of the module content, the resources, the assessment and things like that. So first of all, before we delve into the detail of that, because this is all about having a cup of tea with us, what's your favourite tea or drink to have when you're working um, that keeps you going, keeps you hydrated? Um, I keep me going hydrated for different things. <laughs> so uh, keep me going is really coffee. So um, I always use one of many coffee bars on campus, or flat white, or um, instant lattes out of a sachets in my office. Nice. Excellent. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we can't provide you with a drink today because we're online. But so, it, yeah, um, I'm very already. <laughs> oh, you brought your own. Very good. Very good. The next time we see you on campus, you can have a drink with us. Yeah. So tell us about the work that you've been doing with this kind of large scale groups. How has it all come about and how is it working out for you? Well, it's one of the things in computer science. We've had a quite linear growth in student numbers for several years. I mean, again, the last three or four years, that's gone into more of an oscillation. And prior to that, we'd had a, a very strong growth. So when I started in computer science, teaching classes of between 30 and 40, and then played about for about a decade. Then it began going up to kind of 80s, 100, 120, 160, 200, 240, 260, 300, 320. A lot of this was not really planned for until the August confirmation clearing period. We discovered how many students were arriving. So we had to quite learn to be adapting in how we taught and assessed in that period. But also quite a growing variation across our cohort of students. So in terms of qualifications, the backgrounds, things they've done, and also other things like educational preferences and needs. For some research in computer science, but because it's very biased towards males in terms of his intake, again, there's various actions trying to do to address that. But in practice, nationally, it's about 80%, 90% male. Computer science at whole is, in a sense, worse than that, about 95% male. But in certain psychological or behavioural illnesses or traits, you tend to get there are more common. So we've had over years many students with various autistic spectrum behaviours, students who may not be diagnosed with things but but don't like working with other people or seeing other people. I mean, prior to COVID, we had some who didn't like coming into lectures or big spaces sometimes. Again, that's gone on for many years and with a variety of reasons as well. So, um, so as part of that, we looked at different ways to be able to support different sorts of students with different backgrounds and different sort of preferences. Some of the teaching we do depends on the nature of the module as well. I mean, things like programming modules, you need to have sort of lab time. Again, it could be virtual lab time or actual lab time. The other modules are trying to develop some of the sort of professional and kind of the softer or key skills. So, again, to be able to develop the skill to work with other people, and even if quite reluctant to. 
So look for ways to try and enable that by letting them have choices in sometimes what we're doing in terms of what we're going to create and often choices in terms of what their contribution is going to be so that they can work out ideally within groups of students themselves and if they need it through the tutor, myself or other colleagues, in terms of what they would do and how to contribute. So again, looking at kind of trying to be both flexible and inclusive, things around maybe creating a a team project, maybe a report or a piece of software, a website, and the team could decide who would do what aspects to it. So one thing we did quite early on was looked at how we could identify projects that had quite a wide range of different activities in them. So students could pick different activities within that that suited them personally. So sometimes it might be some students do like to take like a leadership role or work with other people, so often like more team manager. Others prefer kind of more of a technical role and to ideally be left to themselves quite a lot. So it might be they do some aspects of documentation or some technical thing. So did it in such a way that they could have a range of things they could do. I also could do it in different ways. So we tended to, um, you know, prior to COVID, make sure we had spaces where they could get together and collaborate in person, but allowed, again, for many years, using team software tools. So um, as VLEs included it, use VLEs, but prior to that, use various um, other collaboration tools. So we had things like uh, Microsoft and Groupware tools before we had Teams, which meant that students could collaborate even if chosen or didn't or were able to come on campus and again that works well for people with family commitments with other caring commitments students with different physical or mental needs as well so it was designed to be inclusive in that sense and give them some choice and then look at how we could assess that so that the students felt they were getting a fair mark out of that kind of process it's one of the challenges when you do have multiple contributions and multiple assessment types and different activities is that some students think well what i've done is most important so i should get the most marks because it's um, a technical thing and we're doing computer science but if a part of what you're doing as a team is creating something as, as documentation like is important and if people can't read documentation about it the best software in the world is no good if no one can use it so try and so, get students to appreciate that so in regards to that bit you know a bit around where you're establishing do you have grading criteria for each of the like individual roles within a project and, and then you kind of allow the students to see those or not right. so. It's more in terms of um, to, again, to, to agree their contributions early on. So they're agreeing the level of contribution. They self-regulate it almost. Yeah. Again, it might be that someone does two or three things. So again, often with if it's a software development, someone might do documentation and do some of the testing, where someone else is just doing just development, might just do programming. So in a sense, it was supposed to find a kind of level of contribution that they can negotiate on together that was fair, without trying to create separate grading criteria for different things. Particularly if you, you, unless you define early on what all things must be, you can't then define that. So it's more of a kind of a organic development of a agreed contributions within a team, so that they could then agree early on that that was deemed suitable. But sometimes. Sometimes you know, looked at it externally, you know, so someone's contribution didn't look necessarily as big as someone else's. But again, you tend to see that later on in terms of both their input to the team and their mark. Uh, the other side to add to that, the kind of the contribution and degree in negotiating what we do helps to get them going and to give them choices. In those sort of um, assignments, also ensure there's quite a lot of evidence collated which you can use to help in marking moderation later and if there are any issues in the teams give you evidence of what's happened again group our systems quite good for that you can get tracks of who's coming to online discussions who's edited documentation with code solutions we use things like um, subversion or git which track who's contributing what so you have all these logs of activity so if there are any issues later on with relative contribution you've got these other evidence sources the other thing also to make sure that when you're doing these sort of activities, you get give students to do a, a small reflective write-up on what they've done. And usually they all submit that together in final deliverable. But again, it's partly so that they, they know that what they're saying they've done, everyone else will see. And it gives you another piece of evidence of what they have done. I often get them to do, again, partly because it's, it relates to kind of commercial development and partly it's helpful getting looking at contribution. 
is to do uh, timesheets. So each week, so we'll just document how many hours roughly you've spent on this. It's not part of a marketing in a formal sense. You can make it up entirely, which is not really beneficial to you or me if you do that. Yeah. And usually they're quite accurate with that. It's disappointing sometimes when they should have had 60 hours to work on something and they've done six. But that's it. You get a realistic view. I mean, again, a team of six people over a month, there should be several hundred hours available to develop something. I mean, you look at the team submitted timesheet, which is probably, if anything, you'd expect it to be a bit overinflating their time. And it could be 20, 30 hours, you know, maybe 10 for what you'd expect. Jamie, that's because they haven't done the sheets or they haven't understood the task or they've just... No, but they're working at the normal level of students. <laughs> okay. I, I think there's, there's a, maybe a, a fantasy a little bit about how many hours students spend. We haven't learned hours, and we say we've caused a full time. Yeah. And actually, how many students spend full time hours? I started during COVID in, early on. Um, we discovered first year students were only working during the timetable sessions. We thought it was all work we had to do, and we only had yeah. four hours a week on timetable. So early on, we sort of caught them. So actually, no, you should be doing 30 hours a week, not four hours a week. It came as a shock to them, I imagine. Yeah. I imagine as well there'd have been different responses from students about being able to kind of self-direct or self-regulate their learning. So what did most students kind of take to it quite well or were there some students that needed a bit of initial hand-holding to get them used to it? Tending to get the teams to create um, some sort of task list and time plan as well. So again, we do sort of Gantt charts and things so that they have a, a working plan um, and then do sort of weekly reports on what we're actually doing. So again, there was trying early on help them understand what we should be doing. I definitely have any issues. And again, often in those situations, it's quite different. The students help monitor each other, at least. So if, if students maybe aren't doing as much, other students will be chasing them initially. You know, what we say is that if that's what happens in the end, then you can reflect back in your uh, peer feedback and scoring at the end of the activity. But it means that they, they, they do get advice early on about planning what we should be doing and working on it. And so with a caveat that they don't, don't necessarily do that um, anyway, but they've had, had to be advice and support so they can engage with that or not. And is this one of the assessments you've been able to use to the scale of the approaches to scale up as your cohort has grown then is this yeah i mean in a sense we had um, some of this was more loosely defined when classes were smaller and as it as classes got bigger and bigger we we're able to scale it up and add more structure to it i think part of the issue with teaching big classes is you really need quite detailed guidance on what to do because you can't tell them individually what to do We've got 300 students, you know, a minute a student is six hours a week. Um, yeah. You can't talk to them individually. Again, it's one of those challenges with identifying suitable assessments and activities is when you've got large numbers rapidly and there's no increase in resource on that, on that scale of time. Uh, you've got to find things which will work. So, so yes, it's a really sort of work in terms of scaling up because you can sort of manage teams and mostly individuals. Teams can do more of the um, sort of self-support of each other. And then one of the things found, again, is as that got bigger and, again, got beyond the point where you can go around teams. I mean, even with um, sort of with 300 students and even in one module, I did teams of 10 some years, still have 30 teams. So I'd say it's, it's bigger, as many teams as some, some departments have students in their module. You couldn't go around every team. So using um, student demonstrators to help with that works quite well. We've got demonstrators, but really we might sort of student tutors. So typically final year students or master students will do some sort of demonstrating, helping in labs. In these sort of modules where we've got these team activities and multiple activities, they assist students in terms of knowing what to do. If students want some advice on things, they get them from the, the demonstrator. Um, again, one of the things that work quite well is to allocate demonstrators to sets of teams. Give a again, as the numbers got bigger, we have a structure so the demonstrators have had check sheets each week with their set of teams to go through. Say, so has your team done this? Has your team done that? 
documenting issues they had that they can report back to me as the module staff. So kind of developing kind of reporting lines, if you like, in a more formal way. So it was sort of building on things that worked more informally with small classes, things that you could manage with large classes. And a lot of those things that you're putting in place are things they would then experience in the real world in terms of working within a team, working with, you know, within a kind of a project lead, I suppose. Yeah, so, I mean, again, one of the ideas was to make it kind of quite an authentic experience. So it's working, it's learning how to work with people, document things. Again, with the large classes, when it was the um, sort of first-year students, they didn't introduce pick random teams, we'd often seed the teams. We'd tend to seed them in such a way that um, from the data we had, that could indicate where students might be sort of less, um, proactive or engaged, spread those students around the different teams. So, I mean, some staff have a policy where they'll put seed people, but put all the people that some are great together. They can end up with teams where no one in the team is engaged. So that team will be entirely dysfunctional. So in a sense, you're, you're guaranteeing failure for the team. So what I tend to do was to spread around the students who probably needed more support and encouragement to do anything. So there's one or two of them per team, and the rest of the team could help support them. Like I didn't guarantee they'd engage, but there was more chance of it because they were being encouraged to do things. And you can see things happening as well. And a lot of but for the rest of the team, one of the, again, sort of the explanations of that approach is that when you're working in practice, you don't tend to choose your, your colleagues and you will have colleagues who will be problematic, who won't do things on deadlines, <laughs> who wouldn't expect, who won't respond to emails. You promote some of those kind of softer skills. Yeah, so you've got to sort of learn how to work with those sorts of situations as well. So it gave them kind of a practical things they could use later on, both in the course and say, and but beyond into their careers. So it's helpful. Often one of the common things to the student futures, kind of interview questions they get in jobs often is, tell us how you dealt with a difficult situation or tell us how you dealt with a difficult person. So actually those sort of scenarios give them examples they can use to answer those questions. And is, is it an approach that you take throughout the programme or is it just something that you use with with a certain level? Um, usually throughout the programme. So we've used it with every level from foundation year up to um, top masters, so level seven. One of the things we often use alongside that is um, peer assessment as well. So, so we do some reflection and some writing, some evidence. If they're creating a single team activity, uh, albeit with different types of contribution, the way we tend to assess that is to assess the team deliverable or, or set of deliverables, so the app or piece of software, website or report, give that a, a mark and then use a, a peer scoring system to get the students to identify initially the relative contribution of all the team. Again, based on that agreed, what contribution was supposed to be, based on that, score each other's relative contribution and then use that to help create a weighting that gives individual marks. So if somebody is we use WebPA, that's, that's the current university platform where maybe we play soon. But it gives you a way to be able to, again, early on explain to students that the mark they get will be individual, but based on what the team achieves, but any mark is possible between 0 and 100. Do you see fairly standard practice about how students mark each other or do you have to allow for some kind of interference? Or, well, I'm not sure that's quite the correct word, but uh, no, you do, do you regulate the scores? Yeah, so, well, gameplay, in essence. I mean, some yeah, students yeah. do look into it and they, um, so again, we always say it's indicative and helps to moderate the final mark. It doesn't create the final mark, but again, it's why I get the students to do the timesheets, personal statements and look at the evidence. It's also a bit dependent on the students are engaging with it. So again, if you have a team of if a team of ten and six people do marks, that's okay. If a team of five and two people do marks, they can be quite skewed. Again, it's a helpful indicator and can be useful to help moderate and allocate marks. I wouldn't, I wouldn't just use it by itself because it's say it's prone to game playing. If students look into it, you know, things about the albums of these are they're published or quite easy to understand what the principle will be. So um, students can game play. Um, and again, to, to put in a extra protection for students and reassure 
loans to them. Here's our modules, obviously, if students have concerns about how the team's functioned or what the mark's going to be like or that might be issues about sort of game playing or other issues in the team, um, they can you know, alert me at the end and we'll have like a team viva or a team discussion. And again, I've had offered that. I've never had a team ask for that. Mm-hmm. But it's avoided them complaining in the sense that they had a chance to, which meant that they, they decided in the end they were happy enough with what could have come out. So it's it's not not as perfect, but it does mean that they're reassured that it was a mechanism if they had concerns. And if there's concerns afterwards, we look into it. But again, I think it's, it's very rare that there's issues after the uh, marking. Um, we've heard of issues with sort of team activities, usually in modules where we don't do any weighting of individual marks. Of weighting is quite minimal. So many students do complain about the fact that somebody clearly did more than somebody else and their mark was essentially the same. So overall, would you say what were the benefits for yourself and what are the benefits for your students for taking this kind of approach? It's kind of more interesting as a a staff member because the students tend to do more novel things. So having um, just finished marking this year of some modules where there's 50 time assessment submissions, all are very similar. It's the chance sometimes to maintain the focus and stamina to keep reading the same answers repeatedly. Some answers and, and giving fair marks every time. Because when you get in 2030, quite different things, which have got different aspects to them. Often they've got they've done some sort of novel implementation or investigation. It's kind of more interesting to read. So it's sort of a bit more of interest in that sense of staff. And pragmatically, say so it means you can manage larger cohorts more easily. It helps with marking time because again you're marking a small set of projects rather than marking three pieces of work against mark that you're looking at several days of work. Even if you have several staff doing it, you've got to do standardisation and moderation. It's one of the staff doing it, looking at one or two weeks of marking, if they're just teaching one module. Whereas with these approaches, you've got the scaling factor from the team size and then some more mechanical manipulation of the marks, generic individual marks. So it makes it more efficient from a marking and processing perspective. Being with students, it again gives them a wider set of skills. So it gives op- options to do different things. As I say, over the years, had students didn't want to come into campus much for a variety of reasons, to be able to do these sort of activities, do something they could do remotely, and um, engage with a team through the team systems. So they got to develop those skills. It lets the students develop a bit more sense of community as well. It's one of the challenges that we do well often is getting students to feel part of a group. In a way, it can be, it can be hard in bigger classes because there's less obvious groupings to talk to. So if you're in a class of 300, it can be hard to actually link onto anyone. Because if your classes are small, then it, with these team activities, naturally, they're talking to small people regularly. So it helps develop a community and can build up friendships. And it gives them, say, the, the sort of skills they'll need in the future, whether it's in software development or other areas, working with people, doing different things, uh, sort of collaborating and negotiating on what you do, all part of routine, part of work. Okay. Uh, have you got any other questions that you wanted to ask? I don't think so, because you know one of the things we we're going to talk about was the kind of the specific technologies using to help support this. But I think you've mentioned them throughout the use of uh, obviously VLA and Canvas, but then Web PA for that peer assisted market at the moment, and then their feedback, I suppose, and then uh, and Microsoft Teams. I suppose have you seen have you seen Teams support uh, be able to support this in terms of that online community? Do, do the students use that? Do you know to kind of or have they got their own platforms they're using for the group work itself? Yeah, so we you know, we use them Teams. You know, we've tried various platforms we've, we've got so. So we use, use Canvas um, as a main sort of learning repository. We do set up um, groups in Canvas and you set up the, the group sites in there so we can share documents in there and do things within Canvas. Um, as Teams has become more supportive the last two years, we switched to using that and, and creating team channels. So each team had its own unique channel, just that team. And say during the online teaching periods, we get the teams to split up into the team sites, start their own video conferencing in there, and demonstrators will drop in and out of those. I drop in and out of them. 
Yeah, and you can see them being used and see them being used in between the time sessions as well. So we're using those. The, the Canvas team site, the Canvas group support is quite clunky and not integrated. So, so it's there for them. That's tends to not be used by preference by most students. They're used to the lots of group work in, in Canvas. It's a bit awkward to get to um, and it's not, not a great interface. But some teams do prefer other, other platforms as well. So some use Facebook groups um, or Google Hangout with various other platforms. What I will say to them is if they choose collectively to use another platform, all the team must agree to that. And anything in that platform that's about the team that's kind of should be formally reported, if you want minutes or activities, we will see that. I don't add into lots of teams to lots of different platform sites. It's not viable. So if you've got things like that happening, they can copy the content and, p- and paste that into a t- into Microsoft team or the Canvas group, as long as it's on one of our, our two official platforms. Uh, again, we do so we do get some subversion as well for code sharing. So users or platforms, but say students use many others, but we all say that they need to copy and paste into them into our sites any evidence. The other thing is use some of the um, project management things, so things like Kanban Flow. So they can right. do the um, task management tracking themselves. And again, go through those tools with them. But again, say that we don't have any standard support for them currently. So if they use them, they need to take screenshots and put that into the reports and module and the official sites. And many do. But, but again, it's the kind of approaches and software that people will be using when they go into the workplace that I thought in this area, especially. Yeah. It seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, Teams does have some um, project management stuff in there for doing um, task lists and things, but you can't really just have them just in a channel, learning on the team level. So again, in a, in a, when you're teaching a class in a team, it's no good because the entire class would see a single job board. Um, yeah, stuff. Okay, well, it sounds really interesting what you're doing. Is there um, anywhere that if people are interested in finding out more about it, any um, links that we can send out for you as part of the recording? Um, I can links afterwards if you like. Yeah, that would be links to hand. But um, yeah, there's a, a couple of things I've reported on these in terms of do you use sort of team and group work activity, differently tools you use as well. So yeah, I can share them with you afterwards. And, yeah, we would definitely share that with the episode. Yeah, well, that's brilliant because I mean it sounds ideal for dealing with large numbers and and but making it meaningful and authentic for the students as well. So it's been really interesting to hear about it. Thank you for sharing your experiences. Let's go, Mike. Let's talk to you. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. <laughs>